Well, I want to begin this morning by posing a question regarding how people embrace the Christian faith. And frankly, this is a question for all ages. Why do some believe while others reject? Why do some people hear the gospel, become convicted of their sins, turn to Jesus by faith, trust Him with their lives, study and understand the Bible, pray expectantly, live joyfully, and yet others simply flat out reject it all? Furthermore, why do so many grow up going to church and only to end up denying the faith, leaving the church, and rejecting the Lord Jesus Christ? The answer is uncommonly simple. It's because they do not possess spiritual eyesight. It has not been granted by the Lord to understand and to believe. The Apostle Paul has noted in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, that the natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. And then Paul adds, but he who is spiritual appraises all things. Again, the difference between spiritual sight and spiritual blindness. And repeatedly in Matthew 23, our Lord Jesus calls the stubborn, unbelieving Pharisees blind guides. Speaking of the lack of faith in the gospel, Paul notes in 1 Corinthians, or excuse me, 2 Corinthians 4, that the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, that they might not see the light of the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ, who is the image of God. And so you have to have spiritual insight or spiritual eyesight to discern spiritual things. But in this morning's text, we encounter two blind beggars who were able to see things by their faith that many could not see with their own eyes. That even by their blindness, they could still see Jesus Christ. And so turn in your copy of Scripture to Matthew chapter 20, the very last section of this chapter, Matthew 20. Jesus and his disciples have been making their way to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover feast, along with about a million other Jews in the region. And this Passover, however, is unique. The Lord Jesus has already predicted in chapter 20, verse 18 and 19, he tells the disciples, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and hand him over to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify him, and on the third day he will be raised up. And so now, as they're making their way south through the city of Jericho, they encounter two men who make a request of the Lord. Now, this is not the same Two men who make a different request earlier on, another two men, just a few verses before, James and John, request of the Lord that they would be elevated to a high status and seat on his right and his left. But this request from these two men, these other two men here, is a request that warms the heart of our Lord and brings him and moves him to compassion. Starting in verse 29. As they were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him. And two blind men sitting by the road, hearing that Jesus was passing by, cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd sternly told them to be quiet, but they cried out all the more, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. 
And Jesus stopped and called to them and said, what do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, we want our eyes to be opened. Moved with compassion, Jesus touched their eyes and immediately they regained their sight and followed him. And so this event here records uh, the same event that happens in both Mark and Luke with slight variations to the text. Here in Matthew's gospel, Jesus performs this healing uh, as they were leaving Jericho, it says. But Luke says they were actually approaching Jericho. Well, how do you reconcile those two differences? Well, we know that it's possible because there were two Jerichos. On the, on the one side of it, there was the ancient city, which is full of ruins, well, on the other side was the newer, more modern city built by the Herods, and both cities were called Jericho. And so according to my, Mar, uh, excuse me, Matthew and Mark's gospel, they were no doubt leaving the old city, approaching the new city of Jericho, where these events are about to take place. But where in the region are they? The city of Jericho is approximately 15 miles from Jerusalem to the northeast, and so they were going to be traveling south. And as they're traveling, the text says that a large crowd was following him. Now, because of the upcoming Passover celebration, hundreds of thousands of people would have been flooding into Jerusalem and even surrounding the surrounding region was observing the feast. And so this was a big deal. There were three major feasts that took place in Israel every single year, but the Passover was far and away the, the largest one. But as Jesus' ministry began to reach its zenith, these large numbers of people were also beginning to follow him, waiting on what he was going to do next. And so Jesus is traveling along the road, and he's followed by this caravan of people in verse 30. And it notes that as they're passing by, the large crowd is passing through the city. It says here, it passed by two blind men who were sitting by the road. Now, Matthew here doesn't record anything about these men in particular, but Mark, interestingly enough, identifies one of the two men here as, he says, a blind beggar named Bartimaeus, son of Timaeus. And that's literally what Bar Timaeus means, son of Timaeus. It's interesting that both Mark and Luke only record that Bartimaeus was there, while Matthew records that there's a second man who's there also with him. And so in Mark and Luke's gospel, the story is primarily about Bartimaeus, but we know that he's not alone. In fact, only the Lord knows who this second man is, but Bartimaeus is known to all. See, by the time the gospel accounts were written, Decades later, Bartimaeus would have likely been uh, known by all those who were in the church because when they would have read this story, they would have known our friend, our dear brother Bartimaeus, this is not only how he came to Christ to follow him, but this is how he uh, was healed of his blindness. And so they would have been familiar with this man certainly decades later. But here, we only read of two blind men who were sitting by the road. And as they're sitting there, we have to ask, well, what are they doing by the road. Luke notes that they were begging for money. See, much like today, beggars are often discarded or disregarded, I should say, or worse, treated with contempt. They're regarded as the lowest of society. They possess nothing of their own, surviving purely on the benevolence and mercy of other people. 
But today, it's a little bit different for us because even those who have physical ailments, those who are blind, we have programs for them and we have charity for them. Even for the blind, there's assistance and opportunity, but not so in Jesus' day. They were regarded as the lowest of the low. If you couldn't see, then you couldn't work. And if you couldn't work, you couldn't earn or provide for yourself. And so therefore, your only choice was to become a beggar. And that's what these two men were doing on the road to Jericho. And so they're by the side of the road. They're begging for money. And this massive crowd is passing by them. And they begin to inquire What's going on? They can't see the crowd, but they can hear this massive crowd going by. Why is there a crowd passing by? What's going on? Who is in the midst of this crowd? And at some point, somebody tells them that Jesus of Nazareth is in the crowd. But what do they know about him at this point? Well, we don't really know. It's hard to say. Perhaps they'd heard the story from many, many other people who've been healed of their illnesses. Maybe they even heard about the story that's recorded in Matthew chapter 9 about another two blind men who followed Jesus and cried out to him, have mercy on us, son of David, and they were healed. Maybe they heard about that story. Maybe they were thinking to themselves, if if Jesus healed those two blind men, maybe he can heal us as well, these two blind men here. And so as he's passing by, the men here begin to cry out, Lord Have mercy on us, son of David. Of course, they didn't just yell this once. They continued to cry out. And so as this massive crowd is going by, they're just yelling and screaming, Have mercy, son of David. Have mercy. Lord, have mercy on us. Mark and Luke record different variations of this. Jesus, Lord, have mercy on us. Son of David, have mercy. But no one's listening. In fact, they're even, no one's offering to help, and, and they're getting irritated by this. Because you're walking by, and these two guys are screaming and yelling at the top of their lungs. And verse 31 says, the crowd sternly told them to be quiet. Pipe down, you two. We're trying to hear from the Lord. Why were they shushing them? Well, some have speculated that the two men were rebuked simply because they were being obnoxious. That could be, possibly, Others have taken a view that, much like with the bringing of Jesus, uh, the children to Jesus in Matthew 18, these beggars who were reaching out to the Lord, that this is uh, somehow a gospel distraction. That don't you know that the Lord is, is marching his way to Jerusalem to do something amazing, distinct to the mission, and you're just being a distraction? Oh, he doesn't have time to talk to you. Yet others have maintained that the crowds were shushing the men, not for how they were shouting, but what they were shouting. In other words, they were calling Jesus the son of David, and if they continued to do that, it would have drawn the attention of the Sanhedrin, the religious Pharisees and scribes and Sadducees. And if they did that, they were concerned that it's going to make trouble for Jesus and trouble for the disciples because they perceived that he was an increasing threat. And so... They, some scholars have surmised that the crowd was trying to shush them like, listen, don't, don't say who he is, we'll get in trouble. It's hard to say what this is all about. I tend to think it's probably a combination of the things. People in the crowds are probably opposing these men for lots of various reasons. But what's interesting is that the men don't seem to care. They don't care about what, what the crowd thinks of them. They're, they're used to being derided by people. They don't care. They're desperate. 
And so despite being shushed, the Bible says they kept on crying out, Lord, shush, 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 be quiet, be quiet. No, Lord, have mercy on us. Son of David, have mercy. Now let's, I want to look at what they're actually asking here. First, they call Jesus Lord Kyrie in the Greek three times. They call him Lord, Lord. They're crying out, Lord. They call him Lord, and most certainly this would have been a sign of respect. Of course, you want to be respectful of the one that you're asking to heal you. Considering that they, what they say later on, it's also probably logical or it seems feasible that maybe they're appealing to more than just a respectful title that they're acknowledging he's the Lord over all creation. Remember, they're looking to him to heal them. So there could be a, a higher element to their view of lordship here. Remember, by this time, there, there's, they're hearing three years of stories circulating in Israel about his miraculous power. And so they're appealing to him as Lord, and then they call him the son of David. Son of David. This is a messianic title. And we've heard this title used before in our study here in the Gospel of Matthew. We see it used also by the two blind men in Matthew 9.27. We also hear this uttered by the Syrophoenician woman back in chapter 15, verse 22. But to what is this title referring? What does Son of David mean? Well, we know it originates from a promise made by God in 2 Samuel chapter 7 that the Lord intends to establish an everlasting throne in Israel. And on that everlasting throne, he will sit an everlasting king. And who will this everlasting king be? Well, 2 Samuel doesn't give his name, but only notes that this is going to be a natural descendant of King David. And many of the promises that we see in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 through 16, many of those promises apply to Solomon, David's natural next-born son. But we also note that several of those promises extend beyond Solomon, beyond even the life and reign of David into the future. And so for years, what was known as the Davidic Covenant pointed to this son of David who was going to be someone who would come and rule and reign in Jerusalem forever. This is an everlasting king sitting on an everlasting throne. In fact, Psalm 89, which also has references to this Davidic covenant, continues the promise of the covenant, quoting the words of God in verses 3 and 4. He says, I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn to David my servant. I will establish your seed forever, and I will build your throne to all generations. And so all of Israel was looking for this coming king. They were looking for this son of David in fulfillment of this Davidic covenant. This is why the genealogy in Matthew's gospel is so important. Ever wonder why Matthew chapter 1 begins with a list of names? 17 verses of names. Well, if you were with us several years ago, we actually walked through the significance of it. But, but really, to summarize, it's important because it identifies Jesus, the son of Joseph, the carpenter, as descending all the way down the line directly to David himself. He is quite literally a son of David, both on his adoptive father's side and his mother's side, according to Luke chapter 3. 
So Jesus is of the line of David. Later in Romans 1-3, the Apostle Paul makes the point to note that Jesus is born as a descendant according to the flesh. He's a descendant of David. And so genealogically, Jesus fits the bill. But Jesus, of course, fulfills more than mere genealogy. He also performs the works of Messiah, the works of Messiah, which is why after witnessing Jesus heal a demon-possessed man in Matthew chapter 12, the crowds become astonished, and what do they ask when they see his miraculous works? They say this, this man cannot be the son of David, can he? They're looking, they're thinking this way. This isn't the son of David, the one who performs these miraculous works, is it? And of course, they ask and answer their own question, don't they? And yet these two blind men, they were boldly and unabashedly declaring that Jesus is the son of David. Now, the last part of their cry is a plea for Jesus to have mercy on them. Have mercy on us. The phrase, have mercy, really means to take pity. Take pity on us. Because they knew they weren't owed anything. They knew they weren't worthy of grace or kindness. And so they simply beg for mercy. They beg for pity. That's all they have, right? Now, Matthew doesn't record the very next moment, but Mark chapter 10, verses 49 and 50 does. We read in Mark's gospel, this is what happens next. Jesus stops and he tells the disciples, he says, call them here. And so they called the blind man, referring to Bartimaeus and as well as his friend, saying to him, take courage, stand up, he's calling for you. Throwing aside his cloak, he jumped up and came to Jesus. A couple things to note here. Even though the crowds, they tried to shoot them down and shush them for calling out, Here's the thing, Jesus still heard their cries for mercy. He didn't care about the crowd either. He knew who they were. He knew what he was going to do. He decided to have mercy. Furthermore, Jesus doesn't just walk by them, wave his hand and heal them. He could have done that, right? In fact, I mean, Jesus even heals the centurion's son who is miles away. He could have just simply walked by and says, I hear you guys, there you go, and healed them. He doesn't do it. He stops everything. He stops this entire, the, the entire forward progress of the crowd. He stops and calls them to himself. These men who were ignored daily by passers-by now suddenly have the full attention of the God of all mercy. And so look at what happens in verse 32 here. Jesus stopped and called them and said, What do you want me to do for you? What's interesting here is that he, he makes no stipulations, nor does he tell them not to say who he is. Now, why would I even bring that up? Well, because the two men in Matthew chapter 9 who say the same thing, son of David, have mercy, he actually tells them and the rest of the group not to tell other people about the encounter, not to say who he is. But here, he takes no issue with them screaming at the top of their lungs that he's the son of David. Why? Because now is the time. Now's the time, his time of revelation to be revealed as who he really is, is coming. He's only days away from going to the cross. And so the moments of this progressive history are, are now coming to this fever pitch 
where he wants them to know who he really is. The time has come where he is going to give his life by dying on the cross. And so Jesus, he puts no conditions on it. He simply asks them, what do you want me to do for you? How can I help you? Verse 33, they said to him, Lord, we want our eyes to be opened. Notice they don't ask him for alms or money. They could have asked the God of all creation, right? Lord, heal us and give us all this money. Give us prosperity. They could have asked him for that. But rather they asked to be healed. But more than that, they say it this way. We want our eyes to be opened so they can see. How does Jesus respond? Look at verse 34. Moved with compassion, Jesus touches their eyes and immediately they regained their sight and followed him. Matthew here records and includes Jesus' motivation for healing. He doesn't just say he healed them and moved on. He talks about his heart. And in many places in the Gospels, we see the heart of Jesus, that here he's moved with compassion. The Greek is splanknizomai. It really literally means from the guts, from the bowels, from the inner depths of his person, his being. His heart was so moved that he responded to these social outcasts. He responded to these, these degraded men with love and with tenderness. They weren't nothing to him. They weren't lower than other people to him. doesn't matter what the crowds thought of these people. Jesus responded with compassion for the lowest of the low. And in tenderness, Matthew records that he touched their eyes. This is another step beyond, my friends. He doesn't just stop, bring them over, and then just say, you're healed. He, he, he takes their, their head in his hands and he, he touches their eyes. Such a personal, intimate gesture. He doesn't have to do this, does he? But he does. He touches their eyes. He does this other times in Matthew 8, 3. When Jesus heals the, the leper in Matthew 8, he does it by, by touching his eyes. Well, why is that such a big deal? Because you don't touch lepers. But Jesus did. He touched his eyes. Peter's mother-in-law, he touches her. He grabs her tenderly by the hand, heals her and brings her up off the bed. Even the two blind men in chapter 9, he, he heals them by touch. You have to see the heart of Christ. It's not just that he feels compassion. He acts upon it. You know, we don't want to sit next to people that we're weirded out by, right? We don't want to. We see beggars and people asking for money on the street, and we, we kind of shy away. We, we pretend not to see them. Or someone that you know is down, and you're like, well, they're not doing themselves any favors, and we shy away. That's not the heart of our Lord. No, Jesus stops what he's doing. He calls them to himself. He goes over, talks to them, touches them, and ministers to them. He heals them. Yet Mark and Luke record that he actually says things to them. According to Luke, he tells them, receive your sight. Receive your sight, he says. He calls to the creation. The creation answers. And then Matthew says, immediately they regained their sight. Their sight, their eyeballs, the cells in their eyes responded to the power of the voice of the Lord. 
And what's interesting here is that Mark tells us that as Jesus said these things and healed them, he told them, go, your faith has made you well. Of course, this isn't some kind of faith healing exercise. It's not, it's not tying their recovery to their level of faith. That's a farce. If you have enough faith, then you'll be healed of all your maladies. That's not the Bible. That's health and wealth and prosperity gospel. That's not scripture. Now, what is he talking about? What is he saying, your faith has made you well? He's simply pointing to their dependence on the sovereign Lord. They they trusted in him. They knew they couldn't heal themselves. They knew they couldn't minister to themselves. They couldn't even get out of their own way. They trusted in him. Remember who they are. They're, They're beggars. All they have is faith. That's it. And so he basically tells them, your faith, my friends, your faith has made you well. But there's something else going on here. And I'll tell you, my friends, I just I can't shake the thought that there's more to this than simply two men, two blind men asking for physical sight. It's been, it's been nagging at me all week. And I've been reading commentaries and thinking through it, and I'm not seeing a whole lot being written about this, but I just can't shake the fact that I tend to think they're asking for more than simply physical eyesight. My hunch is that they're they're actually asking the Lord to reveal to them spiritual eyesight. When they say, Lord, open our eyes, I don't think they want to just see and that's it. Why do I think this way? Well, for starters, these two men, even before he came over, and they knew he was in the crowd of people, they rightly identified Jesus as the Messiah, the son of David, and they trusted in him implicitly. Before he even got over to them and ministered to them, they already trusted in him as the Lord, the son of David, and they trusted he could heal them. That takes some level of faith, doesn't it? And so much so that Jesus actually comments on their faith, doesn't he? Your faith has made you well. He's speaking about their specific spiritual condition. Whereas other beggars in the past, they had just come to Jesus and asked him for a miracle. He does it, and then he watches them turn on their heel and walk away. But what happens to these men? These men are healed, and immediately they begin following him. They desire to be with Jesus. They wanted him before the miracle. They want him after the miracle. There's something else going on here. I'm convinced of it. And then look at the, re- the uh, response to the request. Now, perhaps Jesus was simply moved with compassion because he felt bad for them. That's certainly possible. Or it could also be because when he beheld these two men, he knew that they wanted to see him and not just to be able to see. That maybe he's moved with compassion because he knows that they're his children. He's calling to them. Now, I can't be dogmatic about any of this. I'm just reading the text, and I, I'm, I think I see this here. Maybe you see it with me. But I'll tell you, this was a wonderful event. In fact, Luke 18, 46, or excuse me, 43, goes on to record that the two men, once they were healed, they began to follow Jesus. But more than that, they began to glorify God. It says they were glorifying God. So Bartimaeus and his friend, they began walking behind Jesus. They're now intermingled in the crowd and they're praising him. They're calling him the son of David. They're thanking him and praising him for healing. And then Luke adds, and then all the people, when they saw it, they gave praise to God. 
So these two blind beggars, once healed, once began praising, the whole crowd sees these men. They take a cue from these men, and now the whole crowd erupts in praise. This is a worship service now. I want to get the music going, people. I mean, this is cool. But now they're, they're praising the son of David, and that becomes the chorus behind him for 15 miles before he gets into the city, which we'll see very soon. But this is a truly remarkable event indeed. Not only do we see Jesus proclaimed as the long-awaited son of David, prophesied in 2 Samuel 7, but we also see the fulfillment of verses like Isaiah 9-2. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. That's what's happening in Israel right now, where Jesus is walking through, traveling the land, and as he's traveling, as he's healing, they're seeing a great light. Isn't that what the Gospel of John says? In him was life. And the life was the light of man? John the Baptist was not the true light, but who was the true light? Jesus. Did he not say, I am the light of the world? He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life? That's what he's doing. He is fulfilling the promise. Messiah came, and as was told to John the Baptist, the blind receive sight, and the lame walk, and the lepers are cleansed. And the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who does not take offense at me. Matthew 11, verses 5 through 6. And so it is by these miraculous works that Jesus the Messiah, he authenticates his ministry. Why did Jesus perform miracles? To show proof that without a shadow of a doubt, or beyond the shadow of a doubt, that he himself is the Messiah, the Savior, the Redeemer, who's come into the world to bring salvation. But I believe there's another purpose of why Matthew included this story in his gospel. Because Jesus, no doubt, healed countless blind people all over the course of his ministry. I mean, for that three years of his ministry, there wasn't a sick person in Israel Because the Bible says in many places, all of Israel came out to see him and brought their lame and their blind and their sick and their poor and their their dying. And so everywhere that Jesus went, he, he healed countless, probably hundreds if not thousands, maybe even tens of thousands of people. And so why talk about these two guys here at this point? Well, because the story of restoring sight to the blind It serves to illustrate a greater reality. This story here paints the picture of salvation. How so? Well, one Bible scholar even calls this account, this very specific account, the gospel in microcosm. I like that a lot. Well, where do we see this? How how does this apply to salvation? How does this apply to us? It's very interesting. I was thinking about this this week. When Martin Luther, the great German reformer, when he died in 1546 and they were going through and preparing his body on his clothes and the day he died they were going through and just kind of cleaning him up and they found a piece of paper in his pocket 
And they opened up this piece of paper, and Martin had written these words, and we believe these are the last words that were on his mind and heart, and it was simply this. We are beggars. This is true. That's his parting thought, that I have nothing of my own. I am nothing. I am simply a beggar. And he says, and we can declare yes and amen, we, we are beggars. This is true. We are all like these blind beggars. Without sight, without anything of ourselves, the lowest of the low, and on our own, apart from God, we possess nothing and can do nothing. As far as our own self-righteousness, Scripture actually says that our righteousness is filthy rags to God. Worth nothing to him. And yet, our Lord, the son of David, the great servant, he passes by and he hears us in our suffering and he takes pity on us. Every single, if you're in Christ, every single one of us, at some point in your life, the Lord Jesus has taken pity on you, took pity on me. After all, knowing that our sinfulness earns us Nothing except an eternity in hell. All we can do is beg for God's mercy. And yet, in his compassion, he touches us. He touches every single one of us, doesn't he? He opens our spiritual eyes. He revives us of our deadness. He heals our spiritual sickness. And when he opens the eyes of our heart, it's then that we see him. There was a day, my friends, again, if you know the Lord Jesus as your Savior, as Lord, there was a day. And maybe you can't remember the exact day and time. Maybe it was even a season of your life. But all of us can remember that there was a time when I I didn't see him. I'd read the Bible and it was just words on a page. I'd pray and I'd feel nothing. I'd do something wrong and it didn't really bother me. But there was a point in which you begin to understand your need for the Savior. You begin to read the Bible and you saw Him. And in your heart of hearts, you understood that He's real and what He says is true. And you begin to feel convicted about your sins. And you cried out for mercy. And you trusted Him by faith. And you felt the wave of comfort and relief and purification wash over you as your sins are forgiven. And you felt your burden lifted and your joy restored. There was a point in your life, my friends, when you saw him with spiritual eyes. And even now, you still see him. It's always funny to me when I'll preach a sermon and someone will come up to me afterwards and say, you know, I felt like you were talking right to me. I'm not talking to you guys. I'm talking to me. You're just in the room. But whenever someone says that to me, and it happens a lot, you know what I think to myself? The Holy Spirit's talking to you. He's using his word, and he's saying, hello, wake up, pay attention, I'm talking to you. I'm just the mouthpiece. I'm just a voice in our wilderness here. No, the Spirit speaks through his word, and he convicts us. And how do we respond with the kindness or by the kindness of God? What do we do in response to his pity and mercy and grace? What do we do? We praise him, and we follow him, don't we? We follow after him. We do what these two blind beggars did. 
We receive our sight, we see him, and we rise up and we praise and we say, oh Lord, thank you. And we follow after him. Again, it's a tiny microcosmic picture of our salvation story. But what if you know the Lord has never opened your eyes? What if you're sitting here today and you're listening to all this and you have no idea what I'm talking about? What if you read your Bible and it doesn't make any sense to you? What if you know you're blind? What if you know you're in need of mercy and forgiveness? What do you do? You take a cue from these two men. Be like Bartimaeus and cry out to him. Cry out. Even if there's a a modicum of faith, of understanding, you cry out. You say, Lord, Son of David, Messiah, have mercy on me. I am a sinner and I need forgiveness. I've done wrong in your sight. And you tell him what you've done wrong. Don't just confess that you're a sinner in general. Tell him what you've done. Tell him the inner recesses of your heart. He knows what's going on. Just talk to him. Some people ask all the time, well, I don't even know how to pray. Just talk. The same way I'm talking to you right now, you close your eyes, you lift up your heart to the Lord, you say, Lord, I don't know what I'm doing. Please help me. Have mercy on me. I've done this, and yesterday I did this, and this is what I've been struggling with my whole life. And here's, you just tell him, you confess your sins to God. And the Bible says that he will not only forgive you, he will also cleanse you and begin to heal you of your unrighteousness. And how can he do it? Because Jesus Christ, the God-man in human flesh, came the perfect and spotless sacrifice. He came and he lived on this earth and walked around among us. And on this specific day, the day of his death, he gave his life as a ransom and paid the penalty for all of our sins. Not only did he die on the cross, but he also rose the third day to bring you life, to restore you to the Father. This is... An amazing gift of mercy of a great God to beggars like us. And so if you've never trusted in Jesus Christ, don't wait. Don't wait till New Year's. Don't wait till you feel like it. Don't wait and try to time it right before you die. People have this idea that, oh, I'll come to Christ before I go. You might die in a car wreck on the way home. You don't know when you're going to go. So if, you, if there's anything in you, even now, any inkling, if you hear his voice in your heart, don't harden yourself in rebellion. Respond to Jesus by faith. And my friends, he will save you. And he will begin to work in you. And you will find the discipline of the Lord working in your heart. And that discipline will give way to obedience of faith. And that obedience will produce a holiness of life in you. And in holiness, you know what you're going to start to find? You're going to find peace. And in your peace, you'll find the joy of the Lord. It's a tremendous gift. This would not be the last time that Jesus would hear people in the crowds crying out and calling him the son of David. 
Only in a matter of days, he would ride into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey. And what would the crowds be cheering and chanting as he rode in? They would say this, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. He would hear it ringing again. And while the crowds were preparing a crown for him, the father was preparing for him a cross. A cross on which he would be nailed and he would die. And it's on that cross that Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, would give his life as a ransom for many. Do you know Jesus? Are you like this blind beggar and you know you have nothing? Call to him. Pray to him. And even if you do know him and say you've wandered away, come back. Call out to him again. My friends, it doesn't matter who is shouting in the crowds. And maybe you're hearing voices of opposition and they're overpowering. He can hear you. Call out to him. He will not turn away. Let's pray. Oh, great God of highest heaven, occupy our lowly hearts. Lord, that is our prayer today. And Lord, your word is so sure and so true. It's like an arrow that pierces right through the core of our hearts. It's like a sword that divides between joints and marrow, flesh and spirit. It reaches us at the very center of who we are. And Lord, it's very easy for us to be prideful, to think that we are something, to think that we are above other people. Oh, those lowly beggars, those sad and pathetic people. Oh, Lord, would you convict us of our sin, of our arrogance, to think that we are better than other people? And Lord, would you remind us that all of us are beggars? This is so true. That by ourselves, in our fleshly condition, we have nothing. And yet you, O great God, possess all things. And you, you redeem for your own good glory. And you raise us up and seat us in the heavenly places in Christ. And you, Lord, you grant us an inheritance you call us your own children, your, your own firstborn sons. You grant us mercy and love and tenderness and forgiveness. And we find all of this, the Bible says, in the beloved. And we, because of Christ, become your beloved. Oh Lord, these truths are so, they're almost too much to bear. That you would love us so supremely. And Father, I know. I know that there are so many here today. Who came here hobbling along. They came here just by the skin of their brow. On their face, on their own stomach. Because they're struggling, Lord. Your people are hurting in various ways. Some are hurting physically. Some have gotten diagnoses 
last week or this week. Some have been ill and been, been in the hospital. Some have suffered great loss. Some are still languishing and grieving great loss. Some are afflicted with spiritual depression. Some are afflicted with sinfulness and nagging things that they just can't get rid of, Lord. Some are downcast and lowly right now and in despair. Lord, would you please minister the word of truth to your people? Lord, would you please bless us by your word and by your spirit? And Lord, restore to us the joy of our salvation. Fill us with thanksgiving and with joy and gladness. Lord, let us praise your holy name. Let us cast off every sin and everything that is an encumbrance to us. And let us run hard the race. Let us emulate Jesus Christ, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and who has sat down at the right hand of the Father. Let us praise your holy name. In steadfast love and truth, let us rejoice in you, O Lord, because you are the God, the Son of David, the healer of blind beggars like us. O Lord, let us praise your holy and righteous name. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.